All right, friends. Well, I'd like to uh, open our Bibles today, but before we get to the text, I, I really believe we need to pray. So let's uh, just go before the Lord and ask Him to, to bless us again as we start. Lord God, we are going to open the Word, the Bible, and we believe that it is the infallible, absolutely perfect revelation of Yourself and of the truth. And we pray that you would open our eyes and help us to understand. I pray that you'd keep me from saying anything that's not right. That you'd put a guard over my mouth just now. And that you would bind the enemy and the evil spirits that would like to distract us and lead us away from the truth. Bind them in Jesus' name and protect us from their influence. We pray, O oh God, that you would just send your Holy Spirit to anoint us now. And not only speak through me, but also allow all the hearers to understand the truth. Lord God, we, we thank you that you've heard us and that you've answered and we receive it in Jesus' name in faith. Amen. This morning I would like to begin a series which I've never done uh, in any other uh, capacity as a speaker or a preacher or anything else, Bible studies. <clears throat> but I just believe that this is where God would like our church to go next. And our body will be beginning a series, and I don't have any idea how long it may go. Um, those of you that I've spoken to about this may understand that I've never preached verse by verse through any book of the Bible. Now, I've preached exegetically and expositorily plenty of times but I've never preached verse by verse through an entire book. And I just believe that God would like us to do that, to like us to dig in deep to a book of the Bible. Those books are self-contained units and have um, a lot of good instruction for us. In each book of the Bible, it's sort of like an entire theme in each book. But I want us to look at a particular book, which I have always found especially fascinating and is one of the most foundational books in Scripture. In fact, some people have said that it is the basis of the rest of the Bible, and that is the book of Genesis. So if you'd like to open your Bible to the book of Genesis, that's where we will begin to study, and we will begin to look at where and what God has to share with us. In our day and age, friends, we are attacked from all sides. North, south, east, and west. Up and down, backwards and forwards, it doesn't matter. Christians are attacked. The truth is under assault. And it's easy for us to get discouraged and think, well, the evil is winning. The bad guys are ahead. Our enemies are attacking the very foundation of truth, of life, and of meaning. If you've heard some of Robbie Zacharias's messages, you'll hear him talk about how the meaning of life is under assault and how there is no meaning of life apart from the Scripture and apart from God. He's an excellent apologist, perhaps the most prolific and proficient apologist of our age. 
and I deeply admire Ravi, although I don't think I agree with him on certain aspects, but he's an outstanding apologist, but he would tell you the, me the very meaning of everything, of existence, is under attack. The basis of truth. How are we to respond to this? What are we to do? How do we respond when these truths are attacked? When the, the very meaning of existence is under assault? Scripture, scripture gives us the answer. Of course it does. But the bottom line is to shore up the true foundation, to build upon the true foundation. First scripture I want us to look at this morning is in Psalms. Psalms. Before we dive into the meat of Genesis, the heart of our message this morning, I want us to see a couple other scriptures that really stood out to me this week as I was preparing for this sermon this morning. Psalm 11, verse 3. You may have noticed, you may have noticed our church sign has a question mark after Psalm 11, verse 3. And that's because it is a question. It says, If the foundations be destroyed... What can the righteous do? And I'm sure that there would be an answer contained within Psalm 11. But that is a scripture that's quoted frequently. If your foundations are disintegrating, well, what can you do? What is there left to do? If your foundations aren't there, your house falls down. You have to have a strong, immovable foundation. So we don't want to build a foundation that can be destroyed. What do we do if the foundations are being destroyed? Well, then let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11. Maybe it's my own weird sense of irony, but I thought it was ironic that Psalm 11, verse 3, would be answered by 1 Corinthians 3, verse 11. The first book of Corinthians... Chapter 3, verse 11. It says this, For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man build, I'm going to go on, if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. Paul is saying there is no other foundation upon which we can build except Jesus Christ himself. No man can lay any other foundation. That foundation is laid. He is the foundation upon which we must build. Now, who do you know has ever been able to destroy Jesus? So, if your foundation is built upon Christ, if the ideas and the worldview that you have is built upon the truth, it cannot be destroyed. If your foundations are being destroyed, you can't do anything. 
But the answer is to build those foundations up. Not build the foundation, but to build upon the right foundation, Jesus Christ. That's the answer. He's the only foundation we are to build upon. So that's... Why should we study foundations? Because everything is built upon that. Why should we go back to the beginning? Because that's where God started. The scripture is built upon the foundation of Christ and Christ begins his revelation of himself to us in the book of Genesis. If we are to understand the answers to the foundational questions that many are asking in our time, like what is the meaning of life? Why am I here? Who is in charge? Where am I going? Questions like that then we have to understand the foundations that Christ has laid for these answers. If we want to know what the answer is, we have to understand the foundation of that answer. We have to grasp a hold of that. Genesis is a Greek word which means literally beginning. And way back a long time ago, some guys decided to translate the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek. So sometimes that gives you an interesting understanding of the scriptures, but the Septuagint is what it's called. That is not the inspired word. The scriptures in the Old Testament were mostly inspired into Hebrew and some in Aramaic. But the original writers, the language they used is the language we need to understand it in. In Hebrew, it's interesting, in Hebrew, the Hebrew word for this book of the Bible means literally in the beginning. So it's the same meaning, of course, but it's just a little bit different. They'd say that because in Hebrew, usually the name of the book or the name of the scroll is the first word in that scroll. So in this case, the word in the beginning, the Hebrew word is the name of this book in Hebrew. And I didn't figure out what that was, this Torah or something like that. Most doctrines in Scripture have their basis in the book of Genesis. Jesus pointed to Genesis when in debate with the Pharisees. He made Genesis the foundation of much of his teaching. He would point back and say, yes, Moses allowed you a certificate of divorce, but in the beginning it was not so. God said, let no man put asunder what God has joined together. God said that in Genesis. Genesis is this foundational reason we know what God thinks about marriage, work, sin, faith, all of the Hebrews, Abraham, judgment, nature. The list goes on, folks. Genesis is the reason we know what God thinks about those things because it sets the table. It's the foundation upon which the feast is had. You see, people naturally go back to the beginning. Any discussion, any thought, anything you do, people go back to the beginning. They'll say, you know, well, show me the proof. How do you know that's right? In debate... My dad, is, I haven't experienced this, but dad tells me that back in his debate days, if they wanted to challenge a certain fact, they'd say, source, what's your source? And you had to be prepared to, 
tell what your source for that information was. Well, people naturally do that. They want to go back to the foundation of it all. And friends, we need to have a handle on God's beginnings if we're to give them God's answers to their perfectly legitimate questions. They have legitimate questions about the, the world, and if we want to answer them for themselves and for ourselves, we need to have a handle on God's answers. And he starts his answers in Genesis. So that's why we're going to spend so much time in this book. It is a wonderful, wonderful book, and we are going to have a great time studying it. But turn to Genesis chapter 1. For those of you that might not have done this before, going verse by verse through a book does not mean that you spend one sermon for every verse. Um, this would be, I might not ever finish the book of Genesis if I did it that way. Uh, I would die before I reached the last verse, which wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing, really. But you don't, you don't have to expect that, okay, verse 1, week 1, verse 2, week 2, verse 3, week 3. We will follow the theme and the context and the, the message. Sometimes it might be a whole chapter. It just depends on how God leads and what truth he wants us to draw out of this, this, this scripture. But today, we are focusing on the first verse. Genesis 1, verse 1. Of course, you could probably quote it with me, but let's read. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. In the beginning. First thing we notice here is that this verse gives us a glimpse into God's eternal nature. In the beginning, you could say it this way, in the beginning, God was already there. And he always has been there. He is an eternal being without beginning or ending. In order to make the beginning, you have to already be there. In order to create time and space, you have to be a being that is outside of time and space. Time, as we understand it, did not begin until God made it begin. Um, if you start studying physics, you start realizing that matter and energy sort of go hand in hand. That's the basis of E equals MC squared. I'm not going to go into that right now. I'm not even sure I could understand it myself. But time and space are interconnected so closely on the, the atomic level, we can't even grasp a hold of it. And yet God exists apart from and outside of time and space. Have you ever thought about the fact that every aspect of God, every aspect of his character is eternal? Someone give me an aspect of God's character. God is what? Just. just. God is just. Have you ever thought about saying that God is eternally just? There is no end to his justice. You ever thought about that? What's another one? Somebody throw one out there. Holy. God is holy. Thank you. Do you know that God is holy is mentioned in the Bible like hundreds of times? 
God is love is mentioned, I think, three. But he says he is holy, like, I mean, 300 times. But you ever thought about saying God is eternally holy? There is no end to his holiness. We think of his holiness as, you know, being completely apart from, uh, from sin. In, in, in God, holiness is like a well that has no bottom. Holiness is like an ocean without shores. It's like outer space, but without the ending of it. He is that holy. His holiness extends beyond time and space. He's eternally holy. What's another one? God is righteous. There's no bottom to his righteous. We could learn about God's righteousness. When we get to heaven, we could spend all of eternity finding out more about God's righteousness because we won't reach the bottom. That's why, that's why Jesus said, I have come, then I have life. Or No, he said uh, in John 17 that they might have eternal life. And he said, and this is life eternal, that they might know thee and thy son, Jesus Christ. Eternal life is to know him because you won't ever reach the end of him. It's, it's amazing. What's another aspect of God's character? Forgiving. Oh, praise God. Have you ever thought about saying God is eternally forgiving? I'm so glad he is. You can't ever sin too much for Jesus. There's no bottom to his forgiveness. Right along with that goes mercy. He's eternally merciful. You can't find the bottom of God's mercy. You can't reach the end of it. His mercy, his forgiveness is eternal. Without beginning or ending, God is eternal. This great truth in Genesis 1 is the starting point of Scripture. It's the starting line. Now imagine if we didn't have a starting point. It'd be like if you went to run a race, or maybe, you know, because we're so close to the Richmond Raceway here, imagine those NASCAR guys get out there and they just, there's no starting line. They just all kind of get in wherever they want to, and they just start going. That would be chaos. Um, you know, Bobby the Bonnie comes out of turn three and starts on turn three, and... Uh, Jeff Gordon starts out on turn four, and um, Mark Martin, he starts right before the checkered flag, like right before the line for the finish line. But wait a minute, there's no finish line. So now there's no point in anything because they didn't start anywhere. They, didn't, they, they can't figure out the ending place because they have no starting point. And they, can't, they don't have any measurement. They can't say, you know, you know, how long is the race because this guy started further ahead than this guy started. So who got to the finish line first? Do you see how that all just breaks down without a starting point? Genesis 1.1 is the starting line of truth. It's the, it's the thing that gives us structure and guidelines. Having a creator gives us guidelines. Guidelines like what my identity is. 
why I am here, what my purpose is, what a family should look like. Those type of guidelines. Having a creator gives us those things. It creates that structure and that sense of continuity to life. And that's what so many people are, are lacking today. This truth in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, it says heaven, doesn't it? Not heavens. He created the heaven and the earth. Notice that. That's significant in the Bible. Don't leave out the S's. Though they're pretty important. This truth has significant implications for us. Let me mention a few of these implications. The fact that we have a creator gives us a construct for objective truth. It gives us a structure in which we can obtain objective truth. In order for truth to be objective to every man, every person, it has to have an originator outside of man himself. If man created truth, then truth is subjective to every man. Because all of us are men, mankind, that is to say, men and women are mankind. All of us would be the originator of truth if man originated truth. But because God originated truth, because God created the heaven and the earth, because that is true, we have objective truth because there is an originator of things. There is a creator of things who is able to create truth and define truth. And because he defines it, we can obtain objective truth. That's a huge battle in today's society. What's truth for you is not truth for me. You've heard that before. Everyone decides what truth is for themselves. Find yourself. Be true to yourself. All of those are truth is subjective type of worldviews. The fact that truth is outside of ourselves is a significant truth, is a significant principle, and it starts here. Because we have a creator, it gives us a construct for objective truth. What's another implication? Well, this is a very significant implication that if, if God created us all, if he is the creator, then he gets to decide what is right and what is wrong. God makes the rules. If this is true, if we believe that God is the creator, since it is true, let's put it that way, since it is true, he gets to make the rules. He gets to decide what's right and wrong. He gets to decide how long we live. He gets to decide how hot the sun burns. He gets to decide whether or not there's any other planet that can sustain life in the universe. They've been looking a long time. They haven't found one. Do you know how many, those of you that have seen one of Dad's favorite movies, The Privileged Planet, you know there's like a list of like 16 or 17, 18 things that all have to be precisely calibrated for life to exist at all. Much less, you know, 
for a planet to sustain life, it has to have a, an atmosphere that can sustain the right amount of oxygen, and the oxygen has to be not too much and not too little, and uh, you have to have liquid water, which means you have to have the right temperature, which means your atmosphere has to maintain the right temperature, and which means you have to be close enough to the sun, but not too far away from the sun. And I mean, it's not just find a planet with water. It's like 20 different things that have to be precisely calibrated. God decided how many of those things had to be calibrated. He decided what kind of air we would breathe, or whether or not we would breathe air, or whether or not we would walk in air or just live in water. And He decided all of it. He makes the rules. Why? Because God created the heaven and the earth. If I, for instance, if I build a building, if I build a building, I have the right to decide what that building will contain, what sorts of businesses I allow or don't allow in that, in that building, what that building's purpose is intended for. I have the right to decide who comes in and who doesn't. I own the building because I created the building. I have a right to it. And friends, if God created the world, he has rights to us. He has a claim upon us. He owns the world. And with that ownership comes certain rights, certain privileges. He has the privilege to decide who lives and who dies. You realize that? God is the originator and the sustainer of life. He sustains life. And if someone dies, he let them die. Now, friends, that, that, that's hard to handle sometimes, especially if you've had a relative or a family member that died in a violent manner. Maybe somebody killed them, or maybe they died from a horrible disease. It's hard to handle the fact that God is sovereign over the world, but he is. And the fact that God created the heaven and the earth means he is sovereign. It means he has ownership and a right to claim us. This fact that he has a claim upon us, that he gets to make the rules, this fact bothers a lot of people. And it really should bother them because they are sinful. They are bothered by the fact that God is the creator. This one fact, God created the heaven and the earth, is under major and coordinated assault by the world and the devil. The fact that God created the world is under a very significant attack in our society. For a very long time, much longer than you might think, men have understood that their conscience needs the Creator to be gone. Their conscience plagues them when they think about the fact that there is a designer of the universe who has a claim upon their soul. And in order to appease their conscience, rather than repenting of their sins and turning to Christ for salvation, turning to, to this Creator to forgive them somehow, to discern and find some way to be right with the designer, rather than that, to appease their conscience, they have to figure out a way for the designer to not be there at all. 
and they choose to believe lies and deceptions that create a world in which the designer does not exist and they explain him away. What's very interesting um, is that often they hate this designer that doesn't exist with a vitriolic and vicious hatred. Why do you hate someone that's not even there? If he's really not there, how can you hate him so much? That proves his existence all by itself. These people have constructed a new religion in which to put their faith, one which does not require a person who is the originator of everything that is, one which glorifies time and chance as the start of life itself. This is published by Answers in Genesis. It's from their Journal of Creation. It says, The theory of biological evolution is not a modern idea, as is often supposed. Organic evolution was first taught by the Greeks at least as early as the 7th century B.C. Greek philosophers probably borrowed and adapted their evolutionary ideas from the Hindus who believed that souls transformed from one animal to another until they reached a perfection state called nirvana. Charles Darwin allegedly made no contributions to the development of the theory of evolution by natural selection, but simply helped to popularize it. Evolutionists today argue that evolution is a modern idea, i.e. a product of scientific research, in part as an effort to lend credibility to their worldview. They want to claim that it's, it's a new thing that, oh, we finally discovered the truth. They've been debating evolution since Jesus' time. Paul probably debated who the creator was or whether or not there was a creator with philosophers and thinkers of his day. This idea is not a new one. It's just become more popular in the modern age than we remember. It wasn't necessarily extremely popular in the early 1800s, but the time, by the time Charlie Darwin made it around the world, people began to pay more attention and be, became more prevalent. And then it became so prevalent that people started teaching it in the public school. And then people started trying to think that, well, maybe it is truly scientific, so we've got to figure out a way for evolution and the Bible to fit together. Friends, I'm just going to give you a preview of the coming weeks. Evolution and the Bible don't fit together. Amen. They can't go together. And we will discern and we will find out as we study the scriptures why that is the case. And you'll be able to tell your friends and family when they say, well, well it doesn't matter. I heard a pastor say this in an interview I was having one time to be his youth pastor. He said, it doesn't really matter whether or not God created the world in six days or in six million as long as we believe that he did it. Well, except that God said he did it in six days. So if you believe he did it in six million, you don't really believe God. So it does make a difference, and it is important how the world got here, and it is important that God did it and that he is the creator. And it's so important that there has been a concerted and coordinated effort to make sure that the Creator disappears from all, all of our thinking, all of our society, 
our government has now adopted this idea that there somehow can be no religion, no God in our government when the founders were completely opposed to that idea and in fact said the exact opposite, said if we don't have God in our society, our society will collapse. And that's what we're seeing because our society is trying to extract God and still maintain liberty and that doesn't work. That can't happen. You can't remove the creator and still maintain order in a society, order, structure, meaning, or the value of human life. If God is not the creator, then my life is my own. And I make the rules. If God is not the creator, no one can tell me what to do. And so then we have subjective truth. What's true for you is maybe it's not true for me. Maybe, you know, you were born a man, but I, I feel like I was born a woman. If you take the creator out, that's what people begin to say. Life has no meaning if the creator is not the creator. If God is not the creator, life has no meaning. Life has no value. There's no value to life. Why do you think all of the egregious and horrible practices of Planned Parenthood are shocking people because there's still some people who value human life, but that this could even happen at all in our society means that there are a large number of people that don't think human life is valuable. It's not just through abortion that we see evidence of the devaluing of human life. It's when people run over other people. It's when people are so focused on themselves and what they want and what they like that they don't care that this other guy has fallen down and is dying. It's the reason that when a car is on fire that the bystanders pull over and watch it burn. And it's a rare soul, a brave soul indeed, who is willing to say that life in that car is worth risking to save. But how many people go, "Mm, oh, that's so bad. Mm. Look at that thing burn. Oh, it's going to blow up. Mm." They pull out their phone and they record the guy dying. You know that they had a news story. They arrested the guy, thank God. You heard about this news story where the guy saw a car accident and the young men inside were being extremely foolish and they deserved to have a wreck. They, I mean, certainly all of us deserve to die, friends. None of us, you know, they, they deserve really what they got. <coughs> he took out his phone or his camera and he recorded them dying. He didn't even call the police. He just, they crashed. Oh, I could get this on tape and I could sell it. That is not valuing human life. And the reason that is happening in our society, the reason that is happening in our age, the reason that women and men can be so calloused as they chop apart a baby is because 
we don't believe the Creator started it. And we don't recognize His claim upon us. If God is not the Creator, life has no value to it. It's simply time and chance that got us here. And why is your life any more valuable than mine? Why is life valuable at all? Everything is pointless and meaningless. There's no meaning in life. And if God is not the creator, then there is no eternity. And this is all that, it, that there is. There is no, no eternal life to look forward to. Nothing to gain as we go on. This is all there is. It's only temporal. And that is the, the, the song, the hymn of our materialistic society. And that is get all you can before you die because that's all there is. Have as much fun as you can before you're dead. That's why so many adults now don't care that we are indebting our children and grandchildren in this nation to the tunes of trillions upon trillions upon trillions of dollars. And that they will one day suffer great hardships because of the financial mess our nation is in. And that's because the the adults now, the leaders now, know, well, it won't happen in my lifetime, so I'm okay. They don't care. Because there's, they just care about what happens during their life, and they don't care about the next generation. All of it, friends, all of it goes back to Genesis 1.1. If you don't believe that, the rest of it breaks apart. What a bleak and hopeless worldview that is if you have no creator. Well, then lastly, the thing I want to point out to you today is that Christ is our foundation. We are looking at the starting line, the absolute foundation of the scriptures, the very first verse. God created the heaven and the earth. But there's some other scriptures that bring out some interesting meaning here. Turn to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Right after Philippians. Chapter 1, verse 16 and verse 17. That's talking about Jesus Christ, the Son. For by Him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether there be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by Him and for him. And he is before all things. There you go, eternity. And by him all things consist. And that means, that Greek word means hold together. By him all things hold together. Everything. And this goes on to describe whether you can see it or you can't see it. So that means physical forces, the laws of physics, the law of gravity, the law of lift and thrust. Physical forces were created and designed by Jesus himself. 
angels and demons, spiritual beings were created and designed by him. We can't see them. Not usually. Once in a while they are manifested. But those things were created by him. They don't have any overlordship over our creator. Jesus made it all. Why? He created it all and it was made by him and for him. They are his. He is the owner. So when we talk about in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, the full understanding of Scripture, interpreting Scripture with Scripture, is that in the beginning Jesus Christ created everything that is. And everything that is was created for himself. For him. He owns it. You see, Genesis 1-1 is our foundation. And Jesus Christ is our foundation. It all fits together. How about John chapter 1? Flip over to the Gospel of John. <coughs> the first verse. Many people could probably quote this. My son, I remember the day I came home and I think he was about three or four years old. Ezekiel I'm speaking of. And he, uh, his mother said, you've got to come and hear this. And I sat down and Ezekiel quoted like the first 17 verses of John 1. Straight through. <laughs> I went, whoa. No, no, no. It was John 3. John chapter 3. And then he did John 1 later. I, it was just, I was stunned. And it was because we'd been playing the book of John for them while they go to sleep at night. And during nap time, just playing it. And so he would hear it as he went to sleep. So the first, you know, until he went to sleep, the first 17 verses or so, he had it. <laughs> just, I don't know if he could do that now, but it stunned me. And it was a great moment. Anyway, sorry for the rabbit trail. John chapter 1 Ezekiel could quote, probably quote it, but it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Verse 3. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. All of it, all of it was made by Jesus. He is the Creator. Jesus Christ himself. A study of creation is a study of Jesus. He is revealed in creation because he is the creator. Jesus reveals himself to us through his creation. It's not just the Father that is revealed in creation of nature. Jesus Christ reveals himself to us in the world around us. The things that we see. Things like the law of gravity. If you try to break the law of gravity, you're going to die. Well, it depends on how much you want to break it. How high you want to jump. But there's another law that overpowers the law of gravity. And that's the law of lift. The physical, if you're a, if you're a pilot, you know what I'm talking about. 
You have laws, principles of thrust and lift. But you don't even have to be a pilot. If you just go out and you take a balloon or you go get in a hot air balloon, you do the right things to that balloon and you create forces that lift it into the air and overpower the law of gravity. But in a plane, you have thrust going forward and you have lift pushing up the wings of the plane. And as those forces combine, it lifts you into the air and you overcome the law of gravity. The law of gravity is no longer holding you on the ground, but you're flying in the air. And that to us reveals redemption because the law of God requires us to stay on the ground. It requires a payment. It requires retribution for violation. It requires death. The wages of sin is death. And the law clearly reveals what sin is. It's the violation of the law. God clearly says that. But there's a law that is greater than the law. Uh, did that make sense? Yeah, let's try that again. There's a law in God's economy that is more powerful than the, the law of Moses, more powerful than sin, and that's the law of grace. Grace overcomes the laws of sin and death. It overpowers it. God, Jesus Christ bestows upon us the grace to be forgiven and the power to live a new life and lifts us off the ground and allows us to soar on wings above the pull of the flesh. The law of the flesh pulls us down, but Jesus lifts us up by the law of grace. And there we are. The world of nature reveals to us Jesus Christ. Jesus is the creator and he has a right to my allegiance. I pledge allegiance. You know, we pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands. We, Jesus is owed our allegiance. We are to pledge allegiance to Christ. Not just to America. To deny him that allegiance is to rebel against the one that made me. To deny absolute surrender to Christ is to deny the very creator himself the allegiance he is due. It's to rebel against him. Jesus Christ is the ultimate foundation upon which all good and eternal things are built. As we begin to look at foundations, as we begin to look at the foundations of our faith and of life itself, we should remember 1 Corinthians 3, verse 11. There is no other foundation that can be laid but that which is laid, and that is Jesus Christ, the Savior of mankind. He is the foundation. He is the Creator. And it is upon Him that we build everything good. So when the foundations are destroyed, we need to say, wait a minute. Where should I be building? Let's build on the foundation, upon the rock that shall not be moved. 
and let's give him our allegiance because he's, he's the rule maker. He gets to decide. He owns us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we glorify you and we glorify your son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, for meeting with us today. We magnify you, O God, for you are the creator. And the very beginning, the very start of it all comes from you. And you give us structure and guidance and meaning. And we pray that you would help us to understand that to be true. Bring to us the light and help us, Lord, to build our foundations, to build our building upon the true foundation, the Lord Jesus Christ. You are the, the foundation of everything good. And help us, Lord, to recognize when we are not doing that, help us to give you our full allegiance, surrendering everything to your control. We pray you'd go with us this week and that you'd help us to be ready to give an answer to those that ask us of the hope that lies within us. We give you glory and praise for it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, friends and neighbors, 